as we have seen so far, the early church is undergoing persecution. This is its first persecution. And you remember what it centers around? It centers around the fact that these people are proclaiming that their leader is risen from the dead, a claim that no religious leader has made ever, at least substantiated. And these guys are running through the streets of Jerusalem saying, our Savior that you crucified is risen from the dead. And as we saw last time, Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Two laymen are standing before the Supreme Court of the Jews giving their testimony and testifying that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. However, we have read in verse 8, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is a phrase that we have come in contact with throughout the book of Acts so far. It's the qualifying phrase that shows us why these people were so powerful whenever they gave witness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that the Holy Spirit is able to take a person and let that person become what that person could not become on his or her own. Something, a dynamic, that God enables a person to live with and to witness with. It's not something contrived, it is something real, where they're filled with the Spirit and thus they see results. And this is something Jesus promised. It enables us to be something we can't become on our own. We have heard testimonies tonight of how God is real. Everything isn't perfect in my life, but God is real. He is working. I'm watching Him do things. And we see evidence that the Holy Spirit lives within people and works within people even to this day. I realize, as I know you realize, that some people try to manufacture what they call the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, or what filling of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be. And you have noticed that some people will change their voice, change the pitch of their voice, and they feel that if you can sound at a a certain level on a certain pitch and a certain emphasis, that that's got to be the Holy Spirit. I've had people tell me that they know that a person is anointed with the Holy Spirit by The sound level and the voice. I mean, if you say, God, it's alright. But if you say, God moves today, people will think, that guy's anointed. Listen to how he talks. And thus, because people think that way, there are some who try to manufacture the anointing or the calling or the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And they try to turn it on. Well, we see results, not necessarily a manufactured level of speech or volume, but simply we see results here. Every time they were filled with the Holy Spirit, we see results. God was moving. In chapter 4, you could divide it up. You could cut the chapter right down the middle, right in two. And first we see the church in the courtroom on trial. And then we see the church in the throne room before God. And that's a real interesting concept that they were standing before men on trial for their faith, but then they moved into the throne room of God and they prayed about their persecution. And God was with them. And ultimately, they take their case to a higher court, which is God. 
You know, these, these people that they were standing in front of, the Sanhedrin they are called, as they were standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin believed that these disciples were on trial, when in effect that wasn't the truth. The Sanhedrin was on trial. The Jewish nation was on trial because there was a higher judge that day in court presiding, and his name was God the Father. And he judges men based on their acceptance or rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate the interrogator, saying to Jesus, Don't you know that I have power to crucify you or to set you free? And remember what Jesus said? He said, You'd have no power at all unless it was given to you by my Father. In other words, Pilate, you're on trial, not me. And Pilate, by his actions, was determining his own destiny. Because God was judging him based on his rejection or acceptance of Jesus. Now, we've read from verse 5 to verse 12 next time, and uh, last time, and we continue. In verse 12 it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In this court, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, as if that's really going to help. That from now on, they speak to no man in this name. And they called them back and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, as you remember, was a group of 71 gentlemen. There were 70 elders and there was the high priest beside who was like the president. He presided over the matters. It was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. They held all of the cases that dealt with legal, spiritual matters. And notice what they saw. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the first thing they noticed is that Peter and John were bold. There was a boldness about them. And they took note of it. Now, Peter was always a kind of a bold person, wasn't he? Not a holy bold person, but he was by nature impetuous. He was by nature reactive. He was bold in his statements, bold in his actions. Remember, it was in the garden when the people came to arrest Jesus. Peter took a sword from out of a sheath and he cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. Now, that's boldness. That takes guts to do that. He was trying to defend his Lord. He loved Jesus so much. He would go to even the extreme of cutting a man's head off. That's what he was aiming for, by the way. He was just a fisherman, not a swordsman. And he had, he had a poor aim. And the man was probably thanking God that Peter was a fisherman and not a swordsman. So bold and impetuous. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Peter who was not afraid to speak up when there was 
Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus on that holy mountain. Remember that? Now, as for myself, when I know that somebody is in the room who is very important in esteem, I'm always cautious about what I say. You know how it is when you're around somebody that's kind of important, you fumble in your speech, you think, you say something, you think, God was so stupid. It seemed that Peter didn't really care. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the prophet of Israel, and Jesus. And, and Peter was kind of sleeping, wakes up, rubs sleep from his eyes, and he says, <clears throat> it is good that we are here. Thank you, Peter. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is great. Always bold. Always bold to speak up and say, I will never forsake you, though everyone leaves you. Yet when it came to holy boldness, Peter didn't have any. He was timid by nature. And you remember that. Although Peter thought he could stand the test and stand up for Jesus in front of people, he couldn't do it. And he told Jesus that he could. When Jesus took his disciples after they had the Last Supper, the Pesach, and they were walking down from the upper city down to the lower city, and they had this long dialogue. Peter said, Jesus, I want you to know something. I love you so much that although all of these other flakes would be offended because of you, I will never be offended because of you. Now, you probably already knew that, but I wanted to reinforce that, that I'll stick by you, Lord. You can count on me. Well, Peter, i got to tell you something. This night, before the rooster crows, in other words, before morning strikes, you're going to deny that you even know me. And that struck an arrow in Peter's heart. Oh, that hurt. And Peter insisted that Jesus was wrong. Jesus! You don't know me! Don't you know that I love you? I'd never do that. I'll die for you. Peter, you're going to blow it. But when you are recovered, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Just remember that. And you remember when Peter was in the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest, when a servant girl came to Peter. A servant girl. Not a Roman soldier. Not the Sanhedrin. Not the police force. A servant girl. And said, weren't you with Jesus? Now, isn't that a perfect opportunity to witness? If someone came up to you and said, aren't you, didn't I see you at, at Calvary Chapel? Or aren't you a Christian? I mean, that's an open door. Weren't you with Jesus? No. No, I know that you were with Jesus. In fact, the way you talk, you're a Galilean. I could, you were one of them. I don't even know him. And he began to swear. He was reactive and impetuous and bold when it came to his nature. But when it came to making a stand for Jesus, there's one thing he lacked, and that was the ability to stand for Christ. He failed and he wept bitterly. And here we see that the Sanhedrin recognizes that Peter and John have boldness. And I link it back to verse 8. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And just think of the changes that the disciples went through from before the resurrection and after the resurrection. After Jesus died, 
Where were the disciples? Were they running around the streets of Jerusalem witnessing for the Lord? They had the door locked in an upper room so that the Roman soldiers wouldn't arrest them. And yet in the book of Acts, we see the disciples so changed, so bold, standing up for the Lord. And Jesus promised them something. And folks, this is a promise that he has made universally to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. In fact, Peter said, this promise is for you, for your children, and for those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be able to be my witnesses. You shall be my martyrs, witness even to the point of death, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a power that I'm going to give you to stand up and make a a bold declaration for me. And so that's the first thing they notice, the boldness of Peter and John. Then they notice also something that uh, I find very amusing. They notice their lack of education. It says they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. I've always, always been fascinated at that because we put so much emphasis on education and training. In fact, Western culture was sort of formed on that basis that all of man's ills can be cured if we can just educate them. That the problem with the world is lack of education, the ability to take in knowledge. If we can educate them, we'll better people. And so we have educated people and made them educated sinners, really not changed their condition much, just made them smarter in their sin. But they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, which is really inaccurate because it depends on your definition of education and training. What they meant is that these disciples lacked technical rabbinical training. They were not experts in the law like the scribes who spent year upon year going through the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Torah, learning all of the rules and the regulations of Judaism. They lacked the technical expertise. And then it says, not only were they uneducated, but they were untrained. You know what I found out that word is in the Greek? Idiote. Can you guess what word we get out of that? Idiot. Now, they used in classical Greek, idiot, a little differently than the way we would use it on the freeways today. Like the little boy who was driving with his mom and said, Mom, we've dri driven all afternoon. I haven't seen one idiot on the road. She said, what do you mean? I was with Dad this morning and we saw seven of them. <laughs> the word, however, used in this text is somewhat different. It actually means unskilled laborer. They were ordinary, as the New International Version says. Ordinary men. They weren't skilled having a position of technical authority in the law. They were blue-collar workers. They were fishermen. They weren't theologians. They didn't go to seminary. And they noticed their boldness. They noticed that they were uneducated. They noticed that they were untrained. And I see this as the beginnings of layman's liberation, which I believe in. You know, one of the things that blesses me about this fellowship is that it relies upon massive lay power. So many of you are, in a very New Testament sense, ministers of the gospel. Because you do minister. You do serve. 
You see needs, you recognize your own gifts, and you match the need with your gift. That's called ministry. You don't need a license. You don't need an ordination. All you need is the confirmation from God in the fruit that results from your ministry. They were uneducated and they were untrained men. And remember this scripture that by now should be drilled into our heads because I use it so frequently. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the learned and the wise and you've revealed them to babes. Those uneducated and untrained people. That is not to say that there are not educated and trained people. And thank God for the educated, trained theologians and and skilled technical people in the Christian faith. I thank God when I see somebody in a professional field come to know Jesus. But by and large, by and large, the world rejects Christianity as being dumb, uneducated, unlearned. And remember the people who followed Jesus the most? It says the common people heard Him gladly. It was the scribes and the theologians who weren't quite sure Uh, They were technically picking everything apart. The common people heard him gladly. And in the New Testament, you see layman's liberation. Were Peter and John ordained men by some seminary or some rabbinical school? No. What about Stephen? The only one really we read about is Paul. He had rabbinical training. He had background. He was wise. He He was learned. But I want to encourage you. You can be educated in a number of different ways. Because what they said about the disciples was a mistake. They were educated. They were trained. Because for three and a half years, they sat under Jesus. That's pretty good. Wouldn't you rather sit under Jesus personally than go to any rabbinical school or any theological seminary? Well, where have you been trained? I sat under Jesus. Oh, that's all. Haven't you gone to graduate school? Well, the the creator of knowledge was my teacher. That's pretty good. And these disciples were more equipped in spiritual truth than these Sadducees and Pharisees. And Dwight Almudi used to say, a plowboy with a Bible is a more apt teacher of spiritual truth than someone who's gone through all of the educational processes but isn't in touch with God. Isn't surrendered to the Lord unlearned and ignorant men. They also noticed something very important. They saw that they had boldness, they saw that they had a lack of education, but they saw that they had been with Jesus. And that also was their second mistake. You guys have been with Jesus. You had, past tense, been with Jesus. That's wrong. They still were. Jesus was with them at that point. And Jesus promised, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And just a warning here, by the way, this text reminds me of this. It's always dangerous when we speak of our relationship with God on a past tense basis. Oh, I remember in the past what a glorious service that was and what a time of commitment that was way back then and how I walked with the Lord and saw all of those wonderful things happen. What about now? Oh, I had been with Jesus. Are you still? Are the past experiences being translated into modern experiences? If not, 
completely invalidated. They noticed that they had been with Jesus. And they noticed something else. Something they saw that was undeniable evidence. It says in verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. This was undeniable evidence. And they were in a real pickle. They were trapped against the wall. Because here, the disciples were preaching what about Jesus? That He rose from the dead. The Sadducees, or the members of the Sanhedrin, didn't believe that there's such a thing as a resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. Here's a guy that they saw and they knew who sat in their temple, who was lame from birth, and everybody knew the guy. And he's standing there. Hi. I can walk. Undeniable evidence. And it shot their whole theological program. I love that. They could say nothing against it. And... What's really interesting is the hardness of their hearts. We see what they noticed about the disciples and about this man. Let's look at what they did. They didn't examine the evidence very honestly. They could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go aside, get out of the room for a minute, and they had a little conference, they conferred among themselves, saying, what are we going to do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And notice this, we cannot deny it. I have always been amazed that although they could not deny it, they tried to hide it. When a man's heart becomes hardened against the truth, it is amazing what he will do to hide or try to deny the truth, even though it's blatant evidence. If only they would have examined honestly the evidence. If they would have said, okay, fact. We don't believe in miracles. Right, right. We don't believe in resurrection. Right, right. However, this guy has been lame for many, many years and sat at the door of our temple, right? Yeah. He walks. What explanation is there? Well, it's a miracle. We cannot deny it. But because they weren't seeking the truth, they tried to avoid the truth. I'm amazed how people continually do that. Remember Jesus? When He walked into the synagogue at Capernaum, the Pharisees knew that Jesus touched people and they got better. And so they were hiding in the synagogue watching to see if he would heal a man on the Sabbath day that they might trap him. Now, when I read that, I want to hit my head a little bit and say, okay, now wait a minute. You Pharisees can't heal anybody. Here's a man who touches people and their arms grow and they're dead and they get raised from the dead. And instead of examining the evidence and being astonished by the evidence and seeing the evidence as the proof that He's the Messiah, you're trying to trap Him on technicality. Which one of you have ever touched a person and watched him walk? They did not examine the evidence honestly. And you know what? There are many people who cop out and use a smokescreen for their own lifestyle. They will say, well, you know, I have really intellectual problems with the Christian faith. I just can't believe that. I'm sorry, I've tried to, but I would have to throw out my brain and put it on the shelf 
for me to believe in Christianity. I, I have intellectual problems with that. I'm sorry. If you're ignorant enough to believe it, that's fine. And often that is a smokescreen for their own hardness of heart. Because if indeed the Word of God is the Word of God, and Jesus is who He said He is, and they are confronted with the truth and their sin, that means I'll have to change. And instead of changing, let's deny it and smokescreen it. Josh McDowell was speaking with a young man at New England University. And he was having a debate, and the guy stood up and said, I have real intellectual problems with the gospel. McDowell said, well, you know what? I am not here to prove that God exists because the finite can never prove nor disprove the infinite. There's plenty of evidence, however, that would point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is still alive because He rose from the dead. But let's just suppose that I could prove to you tonight that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If I could prove it to you, would you turn your life completely over to Jesus? The man said, no. McDowell said, you just proved a point that I've always believed. And that is, you have a problem like everyone else, not with your ability, but with your will. You will not believe, even though you are confronted with undeniable evidence. It says in Acts chapter 1, He appeared from the dead and appeared to many 40 days after His resurrection with many infallible proofs. And the proofs are there. The evidence is there. If you care to research it, you'll be confronted with it. It's undeniable. It's an undeniable miracle. I find that interesting. Even the Sadducees who didn't believe in miracles believed that a miracle happened. They didn't deny it. It took till the 20th century for the liberals to say, well, miracles don't exist. Even the Sadducees, their predecessors, couldn't deny this one. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Have you ever heard people say, you know, I really want to believe, and if I could only see a miracle, I'd believe. If God would just, God, come down from heaven and show me a miracle, and I'll believe. I've had people tell me that. I don't believe they'd believe. In fact, I'm confident that they would figure out some way to explain it away. It's interesting, as soon as Jesus did the ultimate miracle of taking Lazarus, who was dead, and commanding him to come forth out of the grave, and he was raised from the dead. It says that the Jews plotted to put him to death because they saw that Lazarus was risen from the dead. They saw a miracle. A man who was dead that they knew walked from the grave and they denied it. And they wanted to kill Jesus. I found an interesting passage I want to share with you in Luke. Jesus gives a story. It's not a parable, it's a story about the rich man and Lazarus. A different Lazarus. He says, there was a rich man. He had everything anybody wanted. He fared sumptuously every day at the table and he threw scraps off the table that a poor man ate. The poor man was covered with sores. Both of them died, Jesus said. One went to Hades and one went to a place called Abraham's bosom where he was comforted by Abraham. And the rich man, seeing Abraham afar off, said, Father Abraham, Send someone to dip their finger in water, in cool water, and touch my tongue. I'm tormented in this heat. Abraham said, sorry. Can't. There's a great gulf fix between you and I. 
And you can't come over here and we can't go over there. And then he said this. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, that is, the poor Lazarus, to my father's house. This is after they have died. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Oh, Abraham, please send someone to appear to my brothers who are still alive because I don't want them to go to hell and be tormented like I am. Abraham said, in effect, they have the word of God, the testimony of the prophets, the men of God, Moses, the law. If they won't listen to that, they're not going to listen to anything else. But the man went on. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Just like the person who says, oh, if only God would show me a miracle. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And that was proof. It was proven. Because as soon as one rose from the dead, named Lazarus, in the town of Bethany, the Jewish people who saw that did not repent. But they sought to kill the one who raised him from the dead. There's an undeniable miracle here in Jerusalem. Instead of humbling themselves and saying, you know, Peter and John, um, you are untrained, unschooled men, but we've thought about this. And we know that this guy's been lame from his birth. And he walks now. And we have come up with every explanation for this. But the only explanation we can come up with is that a miracle happened. And uh, we haven't seen anything like this except when Jesus was around and now you guys. There's got to be something to this. All they cared about is to keep this thing a dead issue. And then they threatened them. And they called them back, verse 18, and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, it is now officially illegal to preach the gospel anymore in this town. A restraining order has been published. If anyone publicly in mass or personally shares about Jesus, it's illegal. It's an offense. Because this Sanhedrin had the right to pass those kind of laws in that city. The enemy hates Christian testimony. It threatens him. He fears it. When you dare open your mouth and share with an unbeliever that Jesus loves them and has a plan for their lives and wants to forgive them and wants to save them, the enemy is threatened. That's why he is set on a course to silence Christians. And in some cases, he's very successful. You've heard the old saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. But there's another truth. Satan hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. And the one thing he doesn't want you to do is to come to Jesus Christ. Because he knows Jesus will save you, clean you, change you, give you purpose. But if you slip out of the enemy's grasp and you defect... And you become a Christian. Yes, that angers him, but he enacts now plan B. Let's sterilize that believer. Let's make him ineffective. Let's get him so concentrated on his own problem that he won't share the good news with anyone else. Turn him introverted. Quell, silence his testimony because it threatens the enemy. Because when you open your mouth, you are infringing on enemy territory. You are 
threatening to bring another one or two or three into the kingdom of darkness. And the enemy doesn't like that. That's why he's bent on silencing the testimony of the believer. But back to verse 8. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, people recognize you've been hanging around Jesus. Although you're untrained and uneducated, there's a boldness, a holy anointing, a boldness about your life. And so all they tried to do is threaten them. You know, the world expects Christians to preach the gospel. There was a study done a few years ago and they asked people who did not attend churches, why don't you go to church? 47% of them said because churches are too concerned about non-spiritual issues. They're concerned about this social issue, this fund, but not spiritual issues. 53% of them said that the churches they go to aren't capable of helping them find spiritual meaning in life. In other words, the world was telling the church to preach the gospel. It's a sad day when the world says, church, you're not preaching the gospel. Even the philosopher, the existential philosopher, Albert Camus, said this, and I quote him, what the world expects of a Christian is that Christians should speak out loud and clear in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt, could arise in the heart of the simplest man. Let's look at what the Sanhedrin got, what they heard back from these guys. And it wasn't what they expected. The disciples didn't say, well, since it is a law and it is illegal, I'm okay. We'll do it your way. You threatened us and we're really chicken now. We're really scared, so we'll just do it your way. But they didn't. They did not compromise. When Peter and John, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you're going to have to judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Notice that the issue with these disciples was, is it right? Don't preach the gospel anymore. But is it right? Not is it popular. Not is it safe, because it certainly wasn't safe to give testimony to Jesus at this time. But is it right? And you're going to have to judge if we should listen to you or listen to God. But we can't help but just speak the things that we have seen and we've heard. It's not popular, it's not safe, but it is right. You know, talk about separation of church and state. But people are waving the banner. You Christians need to separate church and state. They were doing it. We are going to disobey you even though it is illegal to preach the gospel, even though you have the sovereign governmental right to tell us not to do this. We're going to break the law. We're going to obey God. And that brings up a very important point about the Christian's relationship to the government. For Paul and Peter both tell us that we are to obey the laws of our land instituted by civil authorities because God placed them in that position. Well, how does that gel with these guys saying it's illegal but tough? We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Understand this, folks, that these disciples, it was not easy for Peter to stand up against the authorities of his nation. 
Peter himself said this. Let me read what Peter said in his epistle. First Peter, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every authority that's been instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Seems to be a popular movement among many Christians today to promote their cause by defying the government. And that's okay if it's for the right cause. But the world in general, it is very popular. I was watching the news last night, CNN. And it seems that every night on the news, there's some group in front of the White House, in front of a monument, in front of a courthouse, protesting something. Now, there's a lot of things that need to be protested. There's a lot of ungodly laws, a lot of lives, innocent lives being killed that somebody needs to make a stand for. I believe that. But to some, it's just become of the popular issue thing to do. I want you to notice that the issue that the early church took up with the government was preaching the gospel, not just a social cause. It was preaching the gospel. And folks, if you are involved in upholding any social cause... But in that social cause that you get involved in, you don't preach the gospel, you're not cutting the mustard. Revival is when people turn back to Jesus Christ. You know why people murder babies? And why people pass crummy laws? And why people kill each other? And why there's pornography? It's because the heart of man is desperately wicked. And apart from Jesus Christ, man is bent toward filthiness. Man is bent toward wickedness. It's the wicked, evil nature of man. And the only thing that changes that is when a person comes in contact with Jesus. Solution? Our aim should be to get a person confronted with the claims of Jesus. And we should never be happy until that person does. We should never shout victory until a person has heard the Gospel. I am not saying don't get involved in other issues. I'm saying... Use that as a thrust to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out. That was the issue the early church always stood up for. And it's interesting, the, the, um, these, uh, early church members, what they resorted to. As soon as there was a law passed not to preach the gospel, they didn't have a petition signed. And they didn't pick it in front of the temple. They went to prayer first. It's recorded in the next several verses from verse 23 on. It says, Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they raised their voice to God. He was the first one that heard the complaint. He was the first one that heard the protest. God, we're coming to you in prayer. With one accord, they said, Lord, you are God. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, and that's something we'll cover next time. The prayer of the early church, getting together and praying because they had been threatened. I am convinced that if there had been a way for the early church to obey both the government and God, they would have done that. But there was no option left open to them. I'm sure Peter would have wanted to cooperate with the laws, but there was no option open to them. And being obedient to governmental authorities is not an absolute. It is conditional. And the condition is whenever it infringes upon the greater laws of Scripture, 
That's when you say, I'm not going to obey that. That's when we say we must obey God rather than men. It's illegal, or it was illegal, to bring Bibles. And in fact, many countries, it is illegal to bring Bibles into country. It is against the law. Well, do we say, you know, we don't want to break the law, and so we won't bring Bibles to the Christians and the people who really need them. No, we smuggle them in. Because we are under a higher mandate rather than the law of the land. And it is this principle, folks, that many of the martyrs gave their life for. We must obey God rather than men. Renounce your faith. No. Burn that incense to Caesar. No. Jesus is Lord. And obeying God rather than men was the principle that sent those martyrs to their deathbed. We must obey God rather than men. H.G. Wells said, The trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbors sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. Now, the voice of our neighbors are always telling us, don't tell me that I need God. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we'll get to it Sunday night, the people of Israel said, don't confront us with the claims of God. Prophesy to us smooth things. Pat us on the back. Tell us that we're okay the way we are. Don't tell us right things. It's exactly what they were saying to Isaiah. Don't tell us the truth. Pat us on the back in the name of God and tell us we can get by the way we are. It was said of one of the reformers, he said, when somebody came to him and said, all the world is against you in the Great Reformation, he said, well, then I am against all the world. A guy by the name of John Knox and people said of John Knox, he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. And when he died, inscribed on his tombstone was John Knox. He never feared the face of clay, of a mere man, in other words. He respected and honored God more than what anyone else thought about him. And you know what? When you fear God, something that's not spoken about much in Christian circles, the fear and the respect of God. God is holy. God is righteous. I love Him. I'm committed to Him. And I don't care what people think about me. And you know, when you fear God that way, you won't fear men. You don't really care what people think about you when you're sold out to the holiness of God. Now today, in our world, there are threats. In certain countries, communists oppress people. In certain countries, Islam is the fastest growing religious group in the world. And those things are threatening to quell the church, to stop the church, to silence the church. And let's face it, we've had it easy in this country, but the clouds are changing. The clouds of persecution are coming our way. Is the church ready to face it? I wonder if the church is ready to face it. Many of us may not be. Many of you are. And you will stand the test. But those clouds definitely are coming. At the same time, there is something disturbing on the horizon, and that is a great push, an ecumenical push, which on the surface sounds good, but it goes at its roots basically like this. Let's get all of the people together, all of the liberals who deny that Jesus is God, who deny that the Bible is real, who deny anything about Christianity, but they have the name Christian. Let's them get together with the conservatives and the radicals and, and all of the other faiths, and let's just all get together and we'll love each other. You know what? That will do absolutely no good until the quality of Christianity 
improves. The quantity, though it be many, it won't do a bit of good. To have a whole bunch of stale believers doesn't do the world as much good as having a few sold out on fire ones. These men and women in the book of Acts were unstoppable. How do you stop a person who says, though it's illegal, I'm preaching the gospel? Don't do it. We're threatening you. I'm doing it anyway. The next time in chapter 5, they're caught. They beat them up. And they said, we're still going to do it again. And as soon as they got released out of prison, they're out in the courts preaching the gospel again. In Acts chapter 4, as soon as they're released, they don't pray for protection. They pray for guts to go out there and do it again. How do you stop people like that? You don't. You let them burn for Christ. You let them burn for the Lord. There was a letter that was written by a communist. And a missionary by the name of C.T. Studd got a hold of this letter. And when he read it, he was convicted because it was written by an unbelieving communist. Because the communists were watching the Christians over in the Soviet Union way back when. And they noticed that the communists were willing to give their life for what they believed, but that not a great many believers, Christians, were. And the communists wrote this letter and he said, If I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences the destiny in another, then religion would mean everything to me. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I would labor in its cause alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay my hand or seal my lips. Earth, its joys, its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls that are around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach it. And I would preach in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he would gain the whole world but lose his own soul? C.T. Studd read that and he said, goodness. An unbeliever wrote that. And that changed his direction to become a powerfully motivated missionary for Jesus Christ. Boldness. Untrained, uneducated men filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, no matter what, any of these early church members gave up, it seems, gave up to preach the gospel. They were the happier for it. I have never read, in all the accounts of the martyrs that I have read who have given their lives, I've never read of one who said, well, you know, I'm really disappointed being a Christian all these years and now I'm giving my life. The accounts of the death of the martyrs that I have read were always ones of great joy. Which says to me something that we have said and discussed here, and that is the very worst that God has to give to you as a believer in this life. All of the trials, all of the tribulation you'd have to go through. The very worst that God would allow you in His sovereignty to go through and experience is better than the very best 
that the world has to offer you. There is such a satisfaction, even if it means suffering, even if it means going to prison, being on trial. Because although you are in the courtroom for a period of time, you can always live in the throne room. You're still with Jesus. Heavenly Father, the promises of Scripture as told to us by the Gospel writers, they astound us. These simple fishermen, these uneducated, untrained men, just in love with Jesus, touched their world. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the purpose of the church. First of all, we are here to give you praise and honor and glory. We are not here for our own. We don't even belong to ourselves. We're bought with a price. We belong to you, first and foremost, to give you praise, glory, to have a a relationship with you. And secondly, we belong to each other in the church as servants of one another. And finally, we belong to the world. We owe the world an explanation of who Jesus is. A bold proclamation in love. Remind us of the purpose of the church. Help us, Lord. Although we see the trappings of Your blessings around us as the church grows, as we get new chairs, as we expand here and there, That's not the church. It's just the the sack that houses the lunch. And the lunch is what's important. And the sack is important but dispensable. I pray, Father, that we would take the goodies in the sack and we'd spread it out to hungry people who are so dissatisfied with where they're at that they, they don't know any better. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit, Father. Grant to us Not an obnoxious boldness, but a holy, compassionate boldness to make a stand. To obey God rather than men. I pray, Father, in that time of suffering that we would experience Your peace. When it's tough because we have an unsaved husband or wife or a backslidden husband or wife or unbelievers who work around us or who go to school around us or who live next door to us, those we come in contact with. Although we experience the pain of their rejection and perhaps their persecution, that we might rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for Your name. And as we continue to pray, Lord, I ask that You might touch people's hearts who don't yet know Jesus. And tonight, they would just surrender their hearts to You.